Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. Finding God in the music. A summertime tradition here at Word of Life Church now in its 12th season. Why do we keep doing it? Well, mostly because I like it. Mostly because I like it. But other people like it too, at least they tell me they do. And so we keep doing that. And, you know, the poetic and the prophetic are related. And uh, the poetic comes to us mostly in modern times in the form of music. Our theme this year is songs that make you think. I mean, the song's got to sound good to my ears or I'm not going to use it. But, you know, it's got to have more than just a good melody and beat and rock a little bit. It's got to, uh, this year it's got to make you think. Hmm, hmm, that, that provokes thought. And so... Last week, we encountered Supertramp, some of you youngins for the first time, and uh, their song, Logical Song, and that's a song to make you think. Today's artist is the most underrated rock band in history. Here I stand, I can do no other, God help me. I, I believe this, this band is the most Underrated. So, you know, I, I put a little hint out there. I said, that's who it's going to be, the, the most underrated out on Twitter. And people say, well, who is it? And they're suggesting like Rush. Like Rush is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. How can they be underrated? No, th- this isn't someone that you like and that everybody knows of, but you just think people ought to like him even more. This is, I'm talking about a band that very few of you will ever heard of. And I just think that's a crying shame. I don't know what went wrong. A glitch in the matrix. Something happened. This band should have been huge. Um, This band, I think of as the American U2. They came on the scene about the same time. Uh, They're a four-piece band. They're similar in music style. This is the one I'm talking about. Maybe a little bluesier. They have better lyrics than U2. Uh, They're like U2 in that every single song they ever did is at least implicitly Christian, whether people get it or not. Um, this band was loved by the critics. They always got tremendous critical acclaim. Uh, U2 was a fan of this band. Bob Dylan, big fan of this band. Uh, David Bowie, big fan of this band. Uh, Peter Gabriel said, this band is the future of rock music. Who am I talking about? I'm talking about The Call. All right, how many of you know of The Call? Yeah, more than I thought, although not very many, (laughs) but still more than I thought. Uh, The Call. The Call released seven albums between 1982 and 1990. Uh, Their best-selling album, Let the Day Begin, reached number 64 on the charts. Yeah. So they never had a gold album. All they did was produce awesome music. I have, I, have, I have put together a 25-song playlist of The Call. You can find it on my Spotify. It's public. I mean, it's just a public service to y'all. I'm just, you know, it's, I'm here to please. And so if you want to check out The Call, I have curated a 25-song playlist of The Call that you can 
check out. And when we talk about the call, we're really talking about Michael Bean. Uh, maybe less so than like the, the U2, they're less a collaborative band. I mean, Michael Bean is the songwriter, singer, frontman, bassist. And so, yeah, it's a, he had musicians around him, but, but the call, the genius of the call uh, is really Michael Bean, who was born in Oklahoma City in 1950, and he was around during the Jesus movement. Uh, he wasn't known, but I mean, that influenced him. I don't really know his story, uh, but I just know that he did play on, he played bass, you know, on albums like the second chapter of Acts and people like that. So he was around that Jesus movement world. Uh, then he forms his own band, The Call, which the thing that stands out the most with them are their very thoughtful lyrics. Um, Sadly, Michael Bean died in 2010 at the age of 60. He had a heart attack while he was running sound for his son's band, Black Rebel Motorcycle Club. Anybody heard of BRMC? Uh, well, if you, like, if you like Dead Weather, or if you like The Kills, or if you like Rockin' Tours, you'll like Black Rebel Motorcycle Club. And with, that's, 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 uh, that's Robert LaVon Bean's band, which is Michael Bean's son, but we're not here to talk about them. We're here to talk about The Call. Now, here's how I became aware of The Call. I became aware of The Call in 1986. And I would say, by the way, from 1986 to maybe early 90s, I probably listened to The Call more than any other artist, even more than Bob Dylan. Um, the 80s weren't a good time for Bob Dylan. The 80s weren't a good time for a lot of people. To be, to be honest with you, but, uh, but that, was, that was when, when um, the call was doing their best stuff. And in 1986, uh, we were still down on 11th Street. Remember those days, Perry? Oh, yes. And our worship leader was a guy named Dan Pope. Now, you have to be a real long-timer word aliver to remember. How many of you, anybody remember Dan Pope? Yeah, a few of you. And Dan Pope was our worship leader, not, not on staff, like we were going to, we couldn't pay me, you know. We're not, <laughs> I mean, no, he was a volunteer worship leader, but his job was he was a DJ and the program director at KGNM Radio, Christian Radio Station. I don't know, maybe it's still here, I don't know. But uh, he came to me one day and he has his album. He gives me the album Reconciled by a band I'd never heard of, The Call. He said, he said, BZ, I, I, can't, uh, I, I can't play this. There's no song that fits our format, which, by the way, I would disagree, but that's another story. Uh, I, there's nothing I can use on this. Maybe you'll like, I think you'll like this. And I loved it. I just fell in love with that. I love that album. And then I got all their past albums, and then when they came out with other ones, I, got, I just got all of their music and became a huge fan of The Call. Now, the song I've chosen today is You Were There. This is from their 1990 album, Red Moon. You were there. Now, we're going to show it, play it in a moment, but we're going to have to mute it online because, you know, the copyright stuff, the police will come and shut us down. I mean, we run the risk of that happening, our, our streaming. So if you're on Facebook, we provided a link. Some other places we provided a link. If you're watching in such a way, there aren't, there aren't any links. Just go to YouTube. It is on YouTube. Just go to YouTube, the call and you were there, you were there. The call, you were there, and you'll find it. And you can, it's a four-minute-long song. Hurry up and do it so you can get back. 
All right, so uh, the, the, you were there. It's, it's, a, it's a, just a, it's a simple song in the sense that um, it's just three verses. Well, four verses because there's a third verse guitar solo. But there's no bridge, there's no chorus. It's very callish. I say they, they kind of remind me of you two. They're bluesier than, than you two. This is more of a bluesier sound. But it, it's, it's three verses that tell three stories. Each, each time ends with, you were there. Gonna tell three stories. One story, a second story, guitar solo, and then a third story. Uh, and let's, we'll hear the song, see the lyrics, and come back and talk about it. The call... You were there.
Come on, give some love to the call. God bless him. Should have been as big as you too. So, the song, you were there. Simple structure, no chorus, no bridge. It's three verses. First verse, we meet uh, a homeless man. Saw a man's home, a box made of cardboard, frozen to the bone, can't take much more. Says, Lord, I need help here. Send me a strong hand. So it's a homeless man living in a cardboard box. And he says, I'm afraid I'll never feel the warmth of summer come again. You were there. Second verse. We have a sick man on a sick bed, scorned by the world like he has two heads. This is 1990. This is during the AIDS crisis. Okay, this is a man with AIDS. So he's not just sick, he's also scorned. I saw a sick man on a sick bed, scorned by the world like he had two heads. He says, I'm a man here, dying a cruel death. I'm cut off from the world. Man, it was so sad. And he says, I'm afraid I'll never, I'm afraid I'll be dead before the summer comes again. Then he got the guitar solo because that's setting up the, the third verse, which is really the key. This is, this is the one that's going to make you think. Those are just two sad stories. But then you come to the third verse. And you have a suicidal rich man. He's not poor. He's not sick. Saw a rich man alone in a dark house, a prison made of gold. He could not break out. He says, my life is aimless. It just seems pointless. Boredom truly kills man. I am hopeless. I got diamonds. I got houses. I got silver clouds. That's a model of Rolls Royce. I got diamonds. I got houses. I got silver clouds and silver spoons to match it. I've come up empty. Man, I am desperate, and I never want to feel the warmth of summer come again. I'll be forgotten. My life is over. So the poor man is afraid he'll never feel the warmth of summer come again. The sick man says, I'm afraid that I'll be dead before the summer comes again. The suicidal rich man says, I never want to feel the warmth of summer come again. Why? Because... He says his life is aimless. It just seems pointless. But here's the thing. Here's where you're supposed to think. That rich man could have rescued the other two. Certainly the poor man. And probably could have done something to help the sick man. And if he had done that, I mean, come on now. Could the rich man in this, in this song have done something to save the poor man living in a cardboard box? Obviously. And what if he had? In so doing, he would have saved his own life. He would have suddenly realized, my life is not pointless. I do have a purpose. And in saving someone else, he would have saved his own soul. Now, Jesus tells this exact same story. It doesn't have a third verse guitar solo in it. Take it, Peter, you know. <laughs> but, but Jesus tells this very same story. Luke 16, verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and feasted sumptuously every day. He's got diamonds, he's got houses, he's got silver clouds and silver spoons to match it. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, a man in a cardboard house. Covered with sores, scorned by the world like he had two heads. He's not only poor and homeless, he's also sick. 
who longed to satisfy his hunger with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. There it is. I mean, where do you think Michael Bean came up with this song? I don't know, but I'll bet you a dollar it came from. I mean, he, he's reading Luke 16, and he takes, he takes the, the, the man who is poor and sick and turns him into two men. And then he has this rich man. It's Michael Bean taking the parable of the rich man and Lazarus and turning it into a song. So let's look at this. Because this, this parable doesn't just float in the middle of nowhere. There's context to it. In Luke 16, Jesus has said, no one can serve God and mammon. Mammon is money as a god, as an idol, as a false god. Money is necessary to function in this world. We understand that. But there's always the danger that money will turn into a god, an idol. And that's when it's mammon. And Jesus says, you cannot serve God and mammon. You're going to cling to one and hate the other. Choose wisely. That's what Jesus is teaching in Luke 16. Now, he's saying it to the Pharisees because Luke 15 and 16 are all just a constant tension. It's an ongoing rolling debate between Jesus and the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, who we're told in this passage, in this text, are lovers of money. They ridiculed Jesus for that. So Jesus says, look, guys, you cannot serve God and mammon. You'll either love one and hate the other one or hate one and love the other. And they said, oh, come on. That's ridiculous. And they mocked him and ridiculed that guy, that knucklehead from Galilee. He didn't know what he's talking about because... The Pharisees, as a movement, understand it's not a, it's not a clerical position, it's a, it's a movement. The Pharisees' reading of Deuteronomy was such that God blesses with health and wealth those whom he loves and favors. So if people are healthy and wealthy, it's because God has blessed them, and if they're not if they're sick and poor, it's because God has not blessed them. It was kind of a primitive prosperity gospel. And so their reasoning was, well, if these people are sick and poor because God hasn't blessed them, then we are free just to forget about them. God isn't blessing them. Why should we? God isn't caring for them. Why should we? And that's how they lived. That was their philosophy. Um, and Jesus describes then... In Luke 16, their position, okay, if, if people are sick and poor, we don't have to help them because even God hadn't helped them. God isn't blessed them, so why should we? That's their theology. And Jesus describes that as an attack upon the kingdom of God. He says it this way, Luke 16, 16. The law and the prophets lasted until John, John the Baptist. From now on, the kingdom of God is announced and everyone is trying to attack it. That's N.T. Wright's translation of Luke 16, 16, and it's the correct translation. They're not trying to get into it. They're trying to attack it. Remember, everything Jesus ever said or did was an announcement or an enactment of the kingdom of God. And he's announcing that the greatest rival to full participation in the kingdom of God is the love of wealth. And that the primary purpose of wealth is to help serve those around us. 
And they, they scorned that, they mocked that, they ridiculed that. And Jesus says, yeah, you guys, you guys are the ones attacking the kingdom of God. If we show callous disregard for the sick and poor in society, Jesus calls that attacking the kingdom of God. And then Jesus gives the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. So that's the context. So it's an ongoing debate with the Pharisees. Now, the, the parable of the, of the rich man and Lazarus, the first part of it was a Jewish folk tale that we have seven different versions of it in ancient rabbinic writings. So the first part of this, Jesus doesn't compose. People already knew this. People knew this parable, this folk tale. And it's, it's, a, it's the story of, a, of two people, a rich man and a poor man, who intersect somehow in life and then in Sheol, Hades, in death, there's a dramatic reversal of fortunes. And so we start off and we're introduced, first of all, to this rich man who is kind of a, he's a tragic comic figure. I think of him as kind of a, a combination of Gordon Gecko and Thurston Howell III. There's your Gilligan's Island reference for the day. So, you know, imagine kind of a mashup of Gordon Gecko from Wall Street and, and Lovey, <laughs> Thurst, Thurston Howell III from Gilligan's Island into one kind of tragic comic figure. He's got everything. He's rich. He's got it all. Fares sumptuously day after day. He's got his Rolls Royces and all of that. And then we're introduced to a poor man whom Jesus gives a name. Now notice, notice all right, Lazarus, which means whom God helps. That's, his, that's, what, that's what Lazarus means, whom God helps. And so, see, Jesus is already reversing it. He's already reversing it. Because in life, you know, the rich and powerful, we know their names. Right? We know their names. They have an identity. We know who they are. The homeless, they have, we don't know their name. We might, we might have pity on them, but we don't, it's very difficult for us to really get, you know, see this as a human person. But Jesus flips it. And he says, and there was a poor man. His name was Lazarus, whom God helps. He gives him a name and an identity. And the rich man is like, I oh, just, you know, one of those stock rich men. They're a dime a dozen. Jesus flips it. Doesn't give a specific identity to the rich man, gives a specific identity to the one who is constantly overlooked and not given identity. Now, Lazarus is poor and he's also sick. He's a homeless AIDS victim, let's say it that way. And the rich man's crumbs, just the crumbs from the rich man's table could save Lazarus. The crumbs from your table. There's a U2 song. Dealing with the same thing. I mean, they both work from this parable. The call writes a song called, You Were There. You two writes a song, The Crumbs from Your Table. The crumbs from the, just the crumbs. Just the, the guy's not even using the crumbs. Just the crumbs could have saved him. But no, he's not given the crumbs. And so he dies. And the angels carry him to the realm of the dead. This isn't heaven. This is Hades. This is Sheol. This is the realm of the dead. This is where Jesus is going to descend and empty in his descent and resurrection, but that's a whole other 
subject. But there in the, in the realm of the dead, in Sheol, Hebrew, Greek, actually, this is, you know, this is written in Greece, Hades, the underworld, the world, the world of the dead, he's comforted by Abraham, this great patriarch of the Jewish people. And so he, he's comforted. He's in the realm of the dead, but he's not tormented. He's not nagging. In fact, for the first time in his life, he's comforted. Abraham has comforted him. I mean, Abraham's the, you know, he's the rock star of the Jewish world. And Abraham is tending and comforting and taking care of Lazarus. And then, of course, the rich man dies, too, because we all do. And he winds up in the same place, there in Hades, there in Sheol. But for him, it's not a place of comfort, it's a place of torment. And he's tormented. He says, I'm in torment here. It's burning me up. He's in the same place, but he experiences it differently. And then he sees, he sees Lazarus. That's, that's that old guy, he's uh, that old beggar. Ha, in the cardboard box, that guy with the swords. And he sees Abraham. And then Lazarus, and then the rich man says to, notice, well, he, says, he just says, he says, hey, hey, Abraham, 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 awesome to see you. Why don't you just send Lazarus to bring me some water? Because, man, I'm thirsty. Would you just tell Lazarus to bring me some water? See, the rich man has not learned a thing. He hasn't grown at all. He still sees Lazarus as the help. The rich man doesn't even deign to speak directly to Lazarus. He speaks to Abraham because he regards Abraham, you know, Abraham is a famous patriarch. He regards him as a peer. But Lazarus is beneath him, so much beneath him, he doesn't even bother to speak to him. He just wants to tell the most important man in the place, Abraham, to tell Lazarus to get back in his place and serve him. And uh, Abraham says, yeah, that's not how that works. Um, there is a great gulf fixed between us. And by the way, how did that gulf come to be? That's the gulf that the rich man created. By his ignoring the sick and poor throughout his life, he assiduously created this great gulf between him and others. And now he can't cross over when he needs their help. And they can't cross over. The great gulf is created by the rich man himself. Now this is where the Jewish folk story of two men who experience a dramatic reversal in Sheol ends in the, in the Jewish tradition. But Jesus adds a new part to the story. The part about the rich man's five brothers. This is Jesus adding something new to the story because this is really his point. And so, as the story now goes on with Jesus adding a new part to this story, the rich man realizes that he has five brothers who are not yet dead. And he knows they're just as greedy and selfish as he is. And so they're in danger of suffering the same fate and suddenly he has some, you know, concern for someone other than himself. It's his brothers. And so he's concocting a plan for their salvation. And again, it involves... The rich man talking to Abraham, telling Lazarus to do something. And he says, well, hey, Abraham, I got an idea. I got five brothers, and you know, they're, they're as bad as I am. They're going to end up in the same predicament. So why don't you send Lazarus? Because, you know, he, he just can't get around, get over, bossing the help around. 
why don't you send Lazarus to go warn my brothers so they can repent, so they don't end up in my condition? Abraham said, no, they, they don't, they don't need to, we don't need to do that. Your brothers have the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets. And the distillation of the law and the prophets is what? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbors as yourself. All they got to do is listen to the law and the prophets. Remember, Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill it. Jesus comes to establish a kingdom that is fulfilling the aim and the telos and the goal and the purpose of the law and the prophets that we might be formed into a people that love God with all of our heart and love our neighbor as ourselves." And so Abraham says, no, they, they, we don't need to do that. Your brothers just need to listen to the law and the prophets and they'll be all right. And the rich man says, oh, no, that's not enough. That's not enough. But if someone would come back from the dead, that'd get their attention. That'd get their attention. Someone would come back from the dead, that'd get their attention. And then, then they'd repent. And Abraham says, nope. If they won't be persuaded by the prophetic word, they won't be persuaded even if someone comes back from the dead. Now, let's interpret this. Let's interpret this. This is, I mean, Luke 16 flows right out of Luke 15. I mean, we've divided them up, but they're all there together. It's all one episode. It's one moment. This whole story, this whole moment, this episode begins in Luke 15, the very, very beginning, which what is happening is that, that um, sinners, people that have been officially excluded from the synagogue, Tax collectors, prostitutes, other notorious sinners are coming to Jesus. They're coming to Jesus. And Jesus is eating with them and receiving them, forgiving them, restoring them. And the Pharisees are critical of this. And they said, this man, this man, this man, this is a terrible man. He, he eats with sinners. I mean, he welcomes them and receives them. How awful. And so Jesus Talking to the Pharisees tells them three parables. First one, parable of the lost sheep. Second one, lost coin. Third one, the greatest parable of all, the parable of the lost son, the prodigal son. Now at the end of that parable, what happens? You know, you know, the, I'm not gonna, you know the parable of the prodigal son. Older brother, younger brother, younger brother goes off. Comes back, is welcome, received, fatted calf, big party. Elder brother, resentful. Of course, the elder brother is the Pharisees. And the father trying to entice the elder brother, that is the Pharisee, to come to the party says, look, we have to celebrate because this your brother of yours was, you know the word? What was he? Well, no, first one, he was dead, but has come back to life. He was lost, but he's now found. So these these sinners, these tax collectors, these prostitutes that are coming to Jesus and being forgiven and restored, what are they? They are the dead that are coming back to life. But the Pharisees see it and don't respond. The two parables are the same thing. Jesus is making the same point with both the parable of the prodigal son and the parable of rich man and Lazarus. Jesus, in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, isn't reporting on the afterlife. He's reporting on how we ruin our souls. People don't so much go to hell 
as they wake up one day in the hell they've created. This man had been working on his hell. He thought he just had a wonderful life. You know, he thought it was a great life. He thought. He's got, he's rich and fair sumptuously and finest clothes and all of that. But actually he's preparing his hell. And then one day he wakes up in it. And in hell, in Hades, he lifts up his eyes. Now he's in torment. Saw a rich man. I mean, keep in mind the parable we've just gone over, the the rich man, Lazarus. Now hear this third verse again. Saw a rich man in a dark house. A prison made of gold he could not get out. He says, my life is aimless. It just seems pointless. Boredom truly kills man. I am hopeless. Is he going to hell? No, he's already there. How did he get there? He built it. Saw a rich man alone in a dark house. A prison made of gold could not break out. He says, my life is aimless. It just seems pointless. Boredom truly kills man. I am hopeless. I got diamonds. I got houses. I got silver clouds and silver spoons to match it. I've come up empty. Man, I'm desperate and I never want to feel the warmth of summer come again. I'll be forgotten. My life is over. You were there. Jesus says this, Matthew 16, 24. If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake will find it. In a fallen world... People have come to think that the purpose of life is to win in a fallen world. We witness not a fallen world, but falling every day. And nature joins our great descent with quakes and hurricanes. That's the call. We think that the purpose of life is to claw our way to the top, to win, to get that mansion, to end up like the rich man. That's the purpose of life. It's a game of conquest and acquisition. The truth can change a man in the wisdom of his days. It whispers soft but constantly, you cannot live this way. The call, another one of their songs. The truth can change a man in the wisdom of his days. It whispers soft but constantly, you cannot live this way. See, the path of pers- I'm going to be a winner. I'm going to win. I'm going to win in life. That path does not lead to winning, but to losing. It, lead- it leads to losing your soul because the very next thing Jesus says in that passage is, so what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? The win at all road leads to the rich man in hell, the rich man alone in a dark house. Jesus tells us that we don't find life by saving our life, but by giving our life away. It's counterintuitive. It's a divine paradox. Jesus says you don't find your purpose. You don't find life. You don't find a reason to live by prioritizing your own life, by trying to preserve it and save it, feather your nest. Jesus says, no, no, you'll lose it that way. 
You find your life when you start giving it away in my name. If we serve others because we're followers of Jesus, we find our true life. And Christians are those who give their life away in Jesus' name. And there needs to be a kind of ridiculousness about it. It needs, if our life doesn't at times look somewhat absurd to the wider American culture, then how deeply are we living as Christians? I mean, we need to live our lives in such a way that our lives only make sense if Jesus knew what he was talking about. The fallen world says that all things are justified in the name of preserving your life. Christians don't believe that. In fact, I don't know if you knew this, I don't know if you read the fine print, but Christians have signed up for martyrdom with their baptism. We've already had our funeral. So the world says, you have to put yourself number one. The most important thing you have to do is to preserve your own life. And Christians say, no, I already, no. In fact, I already had my funeral. So I'm good to go. And that's, that, you understand, baptism is a burial with Christ. You've had your funeral. And you're, you've been raised, but your life is hidden with God in Christ. And so we are free to give our lives away. When Christianity loses the ethos, the witness of the martyrs, it's, it too easily compromises with the world, with empire, with superpowers, with cultures of acquisition and consumerism. That's why in the book of Revelation it says, they overcame the dragon by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they did not cling to life even in the face of death. See, ultimately, the worst what the Roman Empire could do was to threaten the Christians with death. Either you get with the program and confess that Caesar is Lord and live that way, or we'll kill you. And the Christian says, well, then what? Well, that's all we can do. And the Christian said, well, I've already been buried with Christ. My life is already with Christ. So if that's what you feel like you got to do, go ahead. That's pretty radical stuff, but it's how they turn the world upside down. Well, Jesus says when we cling to our life above all, we lose it. But when we give our lives away in his name, we find it. It is a paradox, but I'm gambling everything on Jesus knowing what he's talking about. That Jesus is the word of God. I mean, after all, if we were talking about, I mean, who really lived? You know, look at this, who really lived, Paul or Nero? I mean, Nero, you know, is the most powerful man. He's the richest, most powerful man in the world. Caesar Nero. On Palatine Hill, in the palace. Rich man. But who really lived? Paul? Paul can, uh, Paul can just keep you spellbound with how much stuff he went through and how hard it was. But who really lived? Paul or Nero? Who really lived? King Louis XIV or St. Francis of Assisi? King Louis XIV, sun king, richest man in the world. St. Francis of Assisi chooses a life of voluntary poverty. But who really lived? And who was aware and present and, and said, uh, see, that's that, 
The truth can change a man in the wisdom of his days. It whispers soft but constantly, you cannot live this way. And Francis, as a young man, heard that and he changed the course of his life and he began, he began to live. By the end of his life, he bears the marks of death of Christ upon his body, but he's living. I mean, who really lived? Gordon Gecko or Mother Teresa? You say Gordon Gecko is just a fictitious character. All right, then supply it with somebody you know that's real, that fits that category. And ask yourself, who really lived? That one or Mother Teresa? Last Sunday, with the logical song, we had the question, please tell me who I am. At night when all the world's asleep, the questions run so deep for such a simple man. I know it sounds absurd, but can you please tell me who I am? And we've answered the question, who are you? You're a child of God. You're a child of God. You bear the image of God, the image of day. You're created in God's image and our creator God is what? God is what is God? God is, say it real loud, God is online. God is love. All right. So God is love. When we live in love and when we live from love and for love, we really live. When we live in love, from love, for love, we really live. When we live for self, when we go inward, and it's, it's, it's me. It's, it's, when we build our walls. We're creating that great gulf. We're creating a great gulf. When we live for self, we're not really living. We're really dying. He not busy being born is busy dying. That's not the call. When we live for self, we're really dying. We're headed for the lonely exile in a self-created hell. When we love and give ourselves away for others, we, in, in the process of, in the name of Jesus, lifting up others and rescuing others and helping others, guess what? In the process of doing that, we're rescuing our own soul. That's the secret that Jesus teaches us. That's the secret that Jesus teaches his disciples. That Everything in our culture is against that and says that's not true. The whole engine of consumerism is driven by the propaganda machine that says you don't have enough. And you've got to focus more on your winning, getting, acquiring, and all of that. There's a whole propaganda machine that tells you that 24-7. But the truth can change a man and the wisdom Wisdom of his days, it whispers soft, but constantly, you cannot live this way. And if you have ears to hear, you say, Jesus is calling me to something that looks a little crazy. But I'm willing to trust Jesus. And Jesus says, you try to save your life, you lose it. Give your life away, you'll find it. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we want to live. We want to really live. And so we need to love. To love God with all of our heart, love our neighbor as ourself. Help us, Jesus. Help us to love. Open our eyes to the Lazaruses around us. They have names. 
Help us to learn their names. Help us to see them. Help us not to overlook them. Help us, Lord, not to, to ignore them because they're not prominent. They're not famous. They're not important. Help us not to be deceived by the spirit of the age that says you're free to ignore these people because they're not the big ones. Lord, help us to see. Lord, we don't, we're not, I don't, I don't want, I'm not trying to put an undue burden on the congregation today, but I'm just asking, Lord, on, that with all of us, you would help us to see those around us that we could help. Whether it's, you know, just to give them $5 or do something a whole lot more. Lord, help us to be aware. Lord, help us to at least, the very, very least, help us to do something good with the crumbs from our table. And maybe we can even do more than that. And Lord, that when we do that, we'll, we'll find our life and we'll live and we'll find out that it's true that it is more blessed to give than to receive. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand up with me. And we're going to come, as it were, to the table of the Lord. You at home, get your communion elements ready here. You have your little crinkly things and, and uh, we'll receive communion together. But before we do that, I thought it'd be good if we prayed uh, the prayer of St. Francis together. I think it's very appropriate for today. So join with me in praying the prayer of St. Francis. Lord, make us instruments of your peace. Where there is hatred, let us sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that we may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. It is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen. And this is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love him and for those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have not been here long. You who have tried to follow and you who have failed, come because it is the Lord who invites you. It is his will that those who want him should meet him here. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you.